I would remind you again that this book is the most powerful book you would ever hold, ever. This is not a man-made book. It's a God-made book. And I believe it from cover to cover. I even believe the cover. It says, Holy Bible. And I hope these times are times where you're you are spending time in the book of Matthew or the book of Luke uh, this month as you uh, think about Christmas because <clears throat> it will help uh, buffer you from all the craziness that's going on. But if you haven't had a chance to read a chapter a day, there are 31 days in the month and 28 chapters, and so you day off for Christmas if you want to, but uh, you'll get... Get into the book and make it feel like your favorite pair of jeans or is comfortable like your old sweater. But I hope you're getting more and more comfortable. That's one of the things that really bothered me coming back from Japan. Our, uh, our churches are just becoming almost anemic in knowing the Bible. So we are weak, weaker. And, uh, and so for that reason, there's a couple things I'm going to do today. As we get into the story... Uh, of Christmas, there's a particular emphasis I wanted to look at today. And we're thinking about peace and we're thinking about hope for the desperate last week. But as we move into Christmas, this idea of shalom, peace that God gives, Jerusalem, the whole city of Israel is named after the one that called peace himself. And you can only get shalom in the presence of God himself. Peace is not a a quantitative thing that you can go to Walmart and pick off off the shelf, or and give me five pounds of peace, or it's not a medication. It's it's a it's a, a reflection of where your relationship is with God. And yet, uh, as we go into the season, a lot of people don't have peace. They have fun, they have entertainment, they got goodies and cookies and all kinds of stuff going on, but. That peace that passes all understanding, that quietness of soul, that you know it as well. You know, uh, in English we say welcome, and that's the translation in English, doesn't do the justice, but it means that when you come into my home, and I say welcome, what that means is when you come, I am made well. Your presence is bringing something that I don't have. And that's the shalom. When Christ steps in, when the, the peace of God steps in, there's a... that uh, takes place when Christ is in your home. Well, as we get into uh, this, the message today about entering into His peace, but in particular when your soul's in pain, and the idea of moving, moving us through... Uh, the story of the gospel and seeing the redemption, the hope that we have in Christ. We're going to look at a couple things today. And, and the first thing is, <clears throat> uh, we're going to look at three prophets. This is, these are the bases I'm going to run around. We're going to look at uh, the three prophets, and we're going to talk about the promise of comfort and what God says through these prophets. And then we're going to talk about the problem of pain and why is it that some people, even though they know about the Word of God, they don't have the peace. And we're going to talk about the power of peace, entering into that. But we're going to talk about the major prophets here. And, and, and bear with me for a little bit, because this is my, 
the professor coming out of me. I don't know if you guys know how many prophets there are, but there are five major prophets. Can you name them? There are four prophet, five major books of the prophets. What are they called? <laughs> Isaiah? Jeremiah? Not Micah. Ezekiel? Daniel, and Jeremiah wrote two. He wrote the book of Lamentations. Those are the major, major works of the Old Testament. But there are minor prophets. There are five major books, and then there are 12 minor books. We won't go into all those because it would take too long. But the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But we're going to move right through. Uh, and there are 12 books of the minor prophets. And so there's 17 books that are historical books that are from the prophets. Now, I want to talk a little bit about prophets because uh, when you get into these major prophets, we're going to look at Isaiah and we're going to look at Jeremiah and we're going to look at one of the minor prophets of Hosea. But uh, these men, uh, to keep in mind, <clears throat> you will meet someday. Uh, if you go to heaven and Isaiah says, hey, uh, Joetta, I mean, I'm mean, so glad to see you up in heaven. What did you think of my book? And, uh, you say, uh, 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 what, uh, and then as long as you're talking to Isaiah, up comes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, well, hey, you guys are talking about books. What do you think about my book? And then uh, over comes Amos and Obadiah. And, and they all gather around and say, how many, how many books did you read? Did you read the whole? And so they're going to expect you to read their books, right? Because <clears throat> they're going to talk about when you go. Well, Isaiah, Isaiah is, a, is the prominent, he's the prominent prophet. Uh, 66 books in that, 66 chapters in that book, a powerful book, a deep book. But we'll look a little bit at it. We'll scoot through that. Then there's Jeremiah. Uh, how many have read the book of Jeremiah? Uh, that's a really hard and yet uh, powerful book as well. And he's going to say, did you read that book, Susan? And then there's this little book in the back, the most peculiar, unique prophet who was asked to go marry a prostitute. Unbelievable what this guy went through. But we're going to look at these three real quickly. But I want to talk about prophecy and to help you understand what a prophet meant for the Israelites. And so when you hear the word prophecy, there's certain things that go through your mind. In the particulars for Americans, we always think about the prophecies of the end times. And yet that was not at all the focus, exclusive focus of the prophets. Because the word, and I go back into this, the, the word studies that I do, I love these. The word pro, and Becky, you'll like this, the word pro and feme make up the, the word prophet. But the word prophecy means to speak on behalf of another. Pro, <clears throat> the pro means for, uh, the, the feme means to speak, uh, to let the word, to let the word of intention uh, stand in mission, like in promise. I give you my word. I give you the word in place of the future action that I'm going to do. So if I give you my promise, my, I'm speaking for something that you won't believe. 
But prophecy then is not just to be limited to foretelling the future, uh, but it'll have to do with <clears throat> more than that. It doesn't mean just prediction. It means uh, more than just a word communicating, uh, but you're re representing the action for somebody else. And that's the difference. In, uh, in place of. And so you're speaking for as an ambassador, as a representative. And therefore, the word prophecy, it may deal with the past. The prophet may deal with the past because God's going to speak to you in the past. God may speak to you in the present, but we tend to think future. So you need to know that distinction. And so um, the example in the Old Testament is Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses had a trouble with communicating in public, and so he said, I can't, I can't lead Israel out. You have to, I'm not a good communicator. And so the Lord said to Moses, see, I made you as God to the Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, your spokesman. He'll be the, uh, the representative going before you. So, so understand that when we go into these prophets, we have to go back in time. And I want you to understand that going back into these prophets, we're going back 26, 2700 years, and we're going to another horizon, to another time. And as we, uh, as we get into that, you have to use your imagination to figure out what's going on. For the last 2700 years, these words have been spoken for believers of all ages. So the first one we're going to look at is Isaiah. If I can get Isaiah up here. Um, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah knew his role as a prophet. But more than that, Isaiah knew that what he, what he was doing was he was not coming up with his own message. He was speaking a word from God. And Isaiah had a very, very high esteem of the scriptures from Moses on, but Isaiah knew that what God would say, for as the rain and the sun and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there without accomplishing its purpose, so shall my word be. Uh, Isaiah thought that when God gives his word, it's sent for a purpose. And that purpose of the word, Isaiah understood as a prophet, that he had a message that was to be taken serious. And so he says, It will give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, but my word that will proceed out, it will not return to me. That's a living word. It's a word that's active and it's going to penetrate and cut and do some things. Isaiah understood that. It shall not return for without accomplishing that which I purpose. And... It will succeed. It's this understanding of the prophet of Isaiah, who was the one who says, For unto us a child is born, and there is a purpose for this child. There's a purpose for this son, and the government shall rest on his shoulders, and he shall be called four things. Isaiah then begins to explain in a prophecy the explanation for what's coming to pass in the Son and the four names is He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. 
Here in the book of Isaiah, you find the Trinity. As you see the Spirit of God being the wonderful counselor, that comforter who's going to guide us into the truth about Christ. You see the eternal God as Father. But you see the Son held up as the Prince of Peace. For where God's Spirit is, there's liberty. And where God's Father comes, there's going to be a peace that's going to guard your heart. And it's going to come through us. And Isaiah says, He will bring us comfort. Here is the Trinity working together. And Isaiah saw and understood that. Uh, Isaiah saw and he understood that. Because if you go back and you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. If you go back in the temple in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah walked into that temple, he saw the Lord high and exalted, lifted on the throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah saw Jesus Christ on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. And when seeing Christ, he fell and said, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now that's the passage in Isaiah 6. But in John 12, in John 12, Jesus calls that out. And it says, in that time, Isaiah saw my glory. Jesus saw Isaiah seeing Jesus. And Isaiah saw Jesus seeing Isaiah. There was a face-to-face encounter. And Jesus referred that to John the Apostle. And all the disciples knew that there's something about that Old Testament that Christ would run to and they would explain to his disciples the Old Testament's going to be fulfilled in the New, and the New Testament's going to be explained in the Old. And so you could get both of them together. The prophet knew that uh, he was going to speak of Christ. A true prophet, again, would never speak from his own purposes. A true prophet would never speak for his own glory. Other false prophets did for political reasons, but not Isaiah. And therefore, when Isaiah wrote that word, Be sure that Jesus Christ, as a young man in the temple, read the book of Isaiah. And not only did he have the scriptures there, but Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit, that wonderful counselor, opening up, directly teaching to Christ's spirit who he was. And when he saw himself reflected in the scriptures, they connected. So much so that when Jesus went to the temple on the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7, They said, hey, how does this man know so much? I mean, he's not an educated guy. He's he's Joe's boy. He's Mary's boy. I mean, he comes from, you know, Nazareth. How does he? You see, when the Spirit of God touches the Word of God, and the Word of God goes into a child of God, and the child of God gets that Word and makes him into a man of God, And that man of God spoke. And when Jesus Christ spoke, people were astounded at what he knew. Of course, he had the Holy Spirit and the Father guiding him. And therefore, when he spoke, they said, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this wisdom? This was the true word, the living incarnate word that would not return without accomplishing what the Father would send. It is written in the prophets, Jesus said that they shall all be taught of God. If you are a child of, 
of God, then you also have the direct spirit to teach you from the Old Testament, from the Holy Spirit, from the church. We all will be taught of God, said Jesus. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, there's one mark, there's one mark that characterizes everyone who hears the voice of God. One mark. You know what that is? They go to Christ. He who hears my Father comes to me. And you study the scriptures, but you don't come to me, Jesus told the Pharisees. Well, Jesus would put them back on Isaiah. And because Jesus was, uh, he cut his eye teeth on the Old Testament. Can you imagine if I took away the New Testament and you only had to read the Old Testament? Would your heart be aflame for Christ? It can be. Go find Christ in the Old Testament. But Jesus understood Isaiah. And Jesus' heart resonated with the purposes that, that filled Isaiah's heart. So much so that this one book of Isaiah, the major prophet Isaiah, is quoted in the New Testament 85 times. Now here's a test for you. What book... Uh, this is blacked out. Let's see if you can get this. You see it there. What book is the most quoted book in the New Testament? What Old Testament book is the most quoted book? No, Isaiah is number two. You see it up there. <laughs> Psalms. Yeah, because Psalms is the book of the heart. And so more is quoted in the New Testament about the book of Psalms. But notice that Isaiah was quoted 85 times. And so much so, you'll see that... Uh, Jeremiah uh, was quoted five times, and Hosea, the minor prophet, quoted five times. Zechariah is up there. But I want you to see one thing. So much so that, that Jesus, when he read the Old Testament, he would take this and he would explain it to his disciples. And for the Matthew, the tax collector, Matthew really caught it. Matthew picked up on, on Christ's teaching because... In the book of Matthew alone, do you get it? Yeah. You'll see that there are eight times that Matthew quotes Isaiah. I won't go through that, but just you'll see them there. That when Matthew picks up, he's uh, reverberating on this message. When Matthew hears Isaiah, this is what's going on. The same thing should be going on for us. Is that eight times, and so when Jesus would talk about Isaiah, Matthew would write it down. Matthew and the disciples heard the Old Testament over and over and over again because he said, today, this will be fulfilled in your presence over and over again. Well, Isaiah was a major prophet. So was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said the same thing as Isaiah. The word of God is powerful. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? When the word of God is spoken, by the prophet, they spoke with full authority. Why? Not because they had it all figured out. It wasn't about them, because they didn't. They were weak men. They were sinful men. But when God spoke, people paid attention, and they were afraid. Well, Jeremiah caused the priests and the prophets of his time to be afraid, because he said to those religious leaders, what you speak of is not accomplishing the 
purposes of God. And you dress the wound of my people superficially. You're giving them religion. You're giving them information. You're making them go through the hoops and jump through the ceremonies. And they look like they're doing okay, but they dress the wound of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, peace. But there is no peace. So on the outside, if you're just looking good, Christ is looking beneath that, and he's calling Jeremiah to speak to those guys and said, if you want real healing, do not be fooled by the superficiality of just going through the motions. They heal the wound of my people superficially, wanting things to be nice, but knowing things are a mess. And so Jeremiah, the prophet, the weeping prophet, moves into his, his whole um, diatribe of how he's calling Israel. You have been faithless. You have been forgetting. You've been running to idols. The way you've dealt with me is to forget God, and you've been going to that which comforts you. You've gone to cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water instead of coming to Christ. And therefore, it was so bad in Jeremiah's time that the word of the prophet says, God's going to discipline you, God's going to judge you, and you will be taken captive, and you won't escape. And yet, in the problem of pain, the main thing that Jeremiah is quoted in the New Testament is Jeremiah says, God's going to give you a new promise, a promise of a new covenant. And God will write, not on the external laws of the Torah, or not on the rituals of the temple, but God is going to address the human heart. And in the heart, he's going to write his laws. By the Spirit of God, he will empower people from the inside out to do that which they were called to do. And that's the claim for Isaiah. And then you come to, uh, then you come to Hosea, the minor prophet. And, and again, Hosea was told to go marry a prostitute. Gomer, an unfaithful woman. Now, God, this is not the way you have abundant life. I mean, he starts his marriage with the whole sense of she's in an affair, she's in another affair, and these kids aren't my kids. The whole problem and the metaphor of, of a faithless people. And yet Isaiah, uh, Hosea calls on God, and God says, I'm going to give you hope in the valley of Achor, Hosea 2.14. And in the valley of pain, in the valley of Achor, in this mess, I'm going to use your life for my purposes, Hosea. I will punish her for the days of the Baals. And she used to offer sacrifices. She would adorn herself with their earrings and those jewelries. And she would follow her lovers and she, so that she forgot me. But, says Hosea, I will allure her into the wilderness and give her a fresh start. You see, these prophets knew that Israel was not faithful. And therefore, Hosea says, out of Egypt, I would call my son. Out of Egypt, I would split the waters and bring him into the promised land. Hosea, if you haven't read Hosea, how many have read Hosea? It's one of my favorite books 
in the Old It's a romance book between God and his people. It's a great book. It's a powerful book. But here, you understand, Isaiah understood the pain. Isaiah understood the sin. Jeremiah understood the pain. And Jeremiah understood the sin. Hosea understood the pain. And Hosea understood the sin. But the Lord would come to those who would refuse him, who would resist him, who would reject him. And yet this promised one, this Messiah, this child, this covenant, this, this one who would allure those faithless came. And Jesus would say to them in Luke 19, if you would have known the things that make for peace, they did not know the things that make for peace. If they would have known the things, there are some conditions, there are some things that they, they hadn't even thought about. And Christ was saying, the word of the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes and you don't know the purposes of peace. You don't know the purposes of pain. You don't come to me. And so if you would have known that day the things that made for peace, but those things are hidden from your eyes. Why? Because they've turned away from the Lord and they looked into some other places for some other relief when there's pain and sin. Well, they're not the only ones. If you're working, if you're, if you're rubbing shoulders with people in Walmart, I told you last week about that boss who grabbed that employee by the face. Well, the, she did it again this week. Grabbed her and said with an intensity, I don't want you to leave my department. Word had gotten back to the boss and she said, somebody's been telling, it was my friend, been telling my boss that the way she's been treating her colleagues. She said, my son, my daughter, and, my, and her boyfriend are moving into my house. I got trouble, trouble with my car. I may lose my job. I'm just, and I don't want you to leave. The world's under such stress. And so much so, I mean, you, it, there's a number of places you can go to find this. Ernest Hemingway said it this way, I love sleep. Some people love to sleep. I love my life has a tendency to fall apart when I'm awake. Isn't that, isn't that funny? Yeah. So if you wake up, you're going to be in stress. If it's not that, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, don't, don't blame the world for their entertainment. Don't blame the world. I don't, I don't fault the world, he said. I don't judge the world when they're going out and doing all these things. Because if you understand how much stress people are under... The casinos make sense. Entertainment makes sense. Alcohol makes sense. Why? Because pain will crush the soul. And we don't know how to handle the pain. Remember that old Tylenol commercial? Pain is un-American. It's against life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that commercial said, I haven't got time for the pain. Remember that one? We don't like pain. So we want to feel good, but we want to go to sleep. Now, there's a couple of things I want to tell you about. Interesting stories. You know this famous story by Charles Dickens, The Christmas Carol, how Scrooge went through his stress at Christmas time and how the ghost of Christmas past came and changed him. You know this story. You know the second story? You know there were five stories that he wrote 
about Christmas in this time. Did you know that? Charles Dickens wrote five stories, and here they are. Christmas Carol, Chimes of Cricket, the Cricket on the Heart, the Battle, uh, the Battle of Life. But this last one is one that really was really intriguing. So let me tell you about this. The Haunted Man. It's actually called The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. Now for Dickens, ghosts were not what we would think of demonic things. Ghosts were apparitions that brought people an awareness and perhaps hopes, hope. But ghosts were always used to refer to redemption, opportunities for change. And in this particular story, there's a man, the main character is called Red, Redlaw. Redlaw was a teacher of chemistry, but he was so caught up with the pain of his past that he was moody, gloomy, and couldn't get out of it. He was haunted by a spirit, and uh, his ghost, when he confronts Redlaw, the ghost is just like Redlaw in appearance and form. And so it was a mirror of Redlaw's spirit. The ghost appears and he makes a proposal. And the story is this. The ghost says to Redlaw, how about this? How about if I enable you to forget the sorrow, to forget your past, to forget your pain? And I will erase from your memory all the trouble that you have known. I will cancel your remembrance. Now think about that. No more worrying, no more remembrance of the pain, no more grudges, no more resentments. And the ghost said, I, would, uh, I can do that for you. Haunted by the Spirit, he begins to think about the pain of the past, and he thought about the death of his sister, who was tortured. Yeah, think about that. Well, he was hesitant at first, but Redlaw finally agrees. I'd like to live a life without pain. I'd like to live a life without those sorrows. I would like to live that life. Dickens, though, what you need to know about the story, this is Dickens' biography. Because Dickens very much shared everything that Redlaw went through. Dickens himself lost his... Uh, sister just a month prior to that. He was, uh, <clears throat> he left his father, his father uh, left him and went to prison. They were penniless. Uh, he was put to work in a shoe factory, darkening, blackening shoes. Uh, it was deplorable conditions. His sister Fanny had died and eventually the family home was given up and the mother and the siblings also had to go into prison. It's been said that Dickens, even as an adult, when he would pass by the side of a, a shoe factory, he would break down because he resented being left behind. He resented the poverty. He resented uh, how his life was disrupted and was tru tru uh, cruelly treated as a child laborer. So in Redlaw, he says, yeah, I'd like to give up all those things. And so he agrees. Well, what he says in the, in the book, he says this phrase, 
I am he, neglected in my youth and miserably poor, who strove and suffered and still strive and still suffer. No mother's self-dying love. My parents, my father's counsel did not help me. My parents at the best were of the sort that as soon as I was of age, I was out the house. Their only duty was to get me out of the house, who cast their offspring loose early. If they do well, they'll claim the fame. If they don't, they'll pity the son. Well, reacting, uh, reaching the rock bottom, Redlaw reacts and he describes himself, he describes himself as this, as a man without a soul, walking through in all this pain, but he doesn't feel anything. And therefore, something happens. He starts to get angry. He starts to get depressed. And he doesn't know why, because he can't remember anything that's causing these things. And therefore, all the present relationships turn sour, and they get hard. Well, without the allowance of pain, there can be no compassion. Without pain, there can be no comfort. He soon regrets his decision. He realizes that perfect harmony does not come uh, without problems. But he realizes that perfect harmony has to be accompanied by perfect compassion. Would you choose that? To live a life without sorrow, a life without pain? You see, pain has a purpose in the promises of God. Pain is there for a reason. And God appoints pain. But Redlaw had to learn, without the memories of pain... Uh, he would never learn the promise of comfort. And therefore, you think about one reason that we have difficulty comforting others in their pain is that we have not been comforted in ours. Huh. Think about that. One reason why we have difficulty comforting others in pain is that we have not been comforted ourselves in our own pain. And therefore, if we don't know how to enter into somebody else's pain with a hope, with a comfort, with a joy, with a peace, because we don't have it. And therefore, there's a purpose for that. Well, the problem is not only pain in the heart, but the heart knows its pain. And therefore, a broken heart, if it's broken, loves better than one that has never been hurt at all. Said in numerous ways, numerous ways forms. But God wants us to know how to handle the pain. And therefore, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That God will comfort us in pain. He goes on in the second part, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also the comfort of ours, the comfort of Christ is ours in abundance. And if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the, in the, uh, in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And out of hope, for you, firmly grounding, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, 
you are also sharers of our comfort. In these five verses, comfort, comfort, comfort is mentioned ten times. Ten times. This is a powerful message for the Christians. If you are in pain, there is a God who comforts. And that's what Isaiah knew. Comfort. Comfort. Three times in these first couple of verses, God is saying to Isaiah, and he says that as a command, you are to comfort. And the word comfort here in English is calm means with and fort means strength, power. With strength, you can move in pain. But the word in Hebrew is something different. In the Hebrew word, it has this sense of It's a sigh. It's like, finally. Comfort is the ability to walk in pain with the power of Christ's spirit where you go, that's the word comfort. And when God's presence is with you, and God can move with you in your pain. You enter into his peace and you go, thank you, thank you. This is the message. He says, comfort, give comfort. God wants you to have the strength of his presence to walk in any conflict or affliction and bless you so that you're sensitive not only to the pain issue, but you're sensitive in the pain to his very presence. And therefore, when Isaiah says, when, I want, when Hosea says, when I would heal Israel, when I want to bring comfort to Israel, I have to uh, uncover the wound and the sins of Ephraim are exposed. Much like surgery in the soul, when God wants you to have peace in pain, he's going to open your heart. And here's the difference. He says, in Hosea, he says, there are people who know the peace of God and there are people who don't. And the reason is this. He says in Hosea 7, go back and read this. And these are the two phrases I want to look at. He says, they do not cry to me from their hearts. Remember the other day I said how you... You would take your heart and talk to God about this. But talking in your heart, he says, they do not cry to me. They do not come to me from their hearts. But instead of crying from their hearts, oh, God, help me with this. I need your comfort. He says, they wail on their beds. Oh, look at this. Look at the situation I'm in. They wail. They complain. And if the pain leads to complaint, understand there will be no, for, no comfort. For it says, they slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain, new wine. They turn away from me, and I train them. I want to help them. I want to give them the strength. But they continue to resist and plot evil by walking away. There are two kinds of ways to deal with pain. One, you cry out to God, or you wail on your bed. And people who wail on their bed are going to live in pain and won't give it up because pain is the way they live. And you take away the pain, like I said to this one lady in a marriage. If you don't keep fighting with your husband, if you stop fighting, you wouldn't know how to love him. Some people can't give up pain. 
Because if they gave up pain, they wouldn't... Pain is manipulative to get people involved. And so if you use people to solve your pain, you will miss the comfort of Christ. God's sorrow, uh, godly sorrow, Paul says, bring repentance and leads to salvation. Leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, wailing on your bed, keeps you stuck in pain, expecting people. But you will be disappointed. And therefore, know this, that pain is not the Lord of your life. But the Lord can be the Lord of your pain. And if you follow Christ in the comforting spirit, he will move into your pain, into the sin, and move you out of the pain of the heart to look at the sin in the heart. For Jesus Christ did not come to die for your pain, but he did come to die for your sin. It's the sin in the heart that Jesus is after. The pain he will listen to but the sin he will heal. And so as he's moving in, what sin will do is it will expose, you don't love God, and you don't love people. You may not even love yourself. There's something missing on the inside, and there will be no peace. Peace. But there is no peace. And therefore, the only thing we can do when we find that there's pain in the heart is follow it to the sin in the heart that we won't run to God for healing. Well, to be here, to hear and to be comforted by God, to have that blessing that God's going to move into Red Law and say, keep your pain, but I'm going to give you my compassion, I'm going to give you my strength, I'm going to give you my comfort. You will be able to move in hope that sin will not knock you off because I'm walking with you. I will comfort you. And therefore, to be comforted by the Lord, you've got to come near to Christ. You've got to confess your dependency upon Him in your pain and in your sin. But you connect to Christ. And you turn it over to Him. Say, Lord, I surrender. Whatever purposes this Word has for me in this pain, teach me not to move out of your presence, but to Teach me to walk with your presence in my pain. And then there will be healing, and then there will be forgiveness, and then there will be movement if you surrender. What does it mean to mean uh, for God to comfort you? He means to come right into the place that you don't want him to come into. To come into those places you don't want anybody to come into. He knows where you're hurting. And your pain matters to him. It does matter. He doesn't want you to walk alone in it. But if you don't know how to do that, then you don't know how to comfort others. And therefore, when you meet people who are hopeless, desperate, and in pain, you can share the comfort which God has comforted you with. And that's the message of Isaiah. Let me go back to that passage and close here. When God said, comfort my people, comfort my people, it was the beginning of the promise of the Messiah, that the man that Isaiah talked about, Jeremiah talked about, Hosea talked about, is you will not be left alone. You will not be abandoned. And God's going to come and give you comfort. That promise is for you today.
now. I hope that you cry from your heart instead of wail from your bed. Let's pray. You said, Jesus, in the world we will have tribulation. You also said our hearts are deceptive and desperately wicked and we won't come to you. Father, you know our resistance. You know our doubt. You know, well, you know us. It's so easy to fake it, to pretend that there's peace when there really is no peace. And so, Lord, I pray that your comforting spirit would move into each one here, that as we hear your word, and that we would just hear it in a way that really allows you to come in and be Lord of our pain and Savior for our sin. So, Lord, there's the Prince of Peace at work, moving, comforting, saving, leading. And it's to you we say thank you. We adore you. We praise you for that. Take these words, Father. Take them deep in our hearts. And we just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.